Hi, I'm Spencer Christian. I've been a broadcast journalist and weathercaster for more than 50 years. And over those years, I've met many remarkable people, remarkable people with remarkable insight. Now, I'll be talking with them about the issues of the day and about their personal journeys. I'll even share a few of my own. So come join me after the weather, and we'll learn together. Welcome to After the Weather. I'm your host, Spencer Christian. Nearly every day, we hear more disturbing news about the dire effects of climate change. Well, my guest today will enlighten us about the unique Bay Area challenge, a challenge that he calls the triple threat. He is Warner Chabot, executive director of the San Francisco Estuary Institute and a longtime champion of science-based planning and policy issues. Uh, a name that's it's synonymous with everything environmental around the Bay Area, isn't it? Yes, but it's an interesting <laughs> background. If you really realize, Mr. Chabot was the engineer. He was like the Mulholland of of Northern California, as Henry Mulholland designed the water system in Southern California. Yeah. He was an engineer, yeah. but he, his his fortune was because he invented the nozzle by which the miners destroyed the Sierra Nevada mountains for oh. mining. So oh my it, gosh. There, there's no direct relationship. If anyone asks me, it's sort of like I'm Sisyphus trying to undo the damage of great, great grandpa Chabot <laughs> okay. is, is my life's mission. Okay. Well, just by chance, your name is Chabot. Yes, okay. Sorry. So, so for those who don't know, tell us about the Estuary Institute and you know, what's its function? What does it do? Yeah. The San Francisco Estuary Institute plays two roles. One, we're a science, environmental science research institute. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we're a nonprofit uh, environmental consulting firm specializing in issues that are landscape scale issues. We basically serve local, regional, state, federal resource agencies. We're 75 scientists. We've been around 25 years and we yeah. try to provide independent objective science to get better science into decision making and everything from bay water quality to wetlands restoration to green infrastructure to climate adaptation issues drought wildfire and, and such so we've been doing science for 25 years and it's kind of more important now than ever <laughs> okay it, it certainly is so let's get right to the important stuff uh the the challenges facing the Bay Area specifically from climate change. Yeah, we have some unique challenges here, yeah. uh, apart from the rest of the country. Yeah, we have like the same challenges the rest country has. I mean, we have issues of drought, wildfire, extreme heat. Um, we may not think it's extreme heat now, but if you're a child waiting for a school bus in Palo Alto, you're usually under an oak tree. If you're a child waiting for a school bus in East Palo Alto, you're standing in the blazing sun. So extreme heat is still an issue, especially for underserved low-income communities in, in the Bay Area. But yeah. for what's really unique to the Bay Area is the fact that we are called, it's called the Bay Area for a reason. San Francisco Bay, we have 101 cities. Almost half of those are on the edge of the Bay. So for the, for basically our entire infrastructure system, we have a triple whammy threat. We have rising seas, rising groundwater that's that's increasingly a, a concern that people don't fully realize, and lowland flooding for more extreme and intense storms. I've heard you describe our condition as almost like being in a bathtub. Yes, we're eight. The, the Bay Area is literally eight million people in a bathtub, and and the water's rising. And you have to stop and remember that our entire infrastructure, whether you're down in the lowlands or you're somebody at the top of the mountain, you still have to flush your toilet. And our airports, our freeways. Um, our water treatment plants, many of our utility lines and everything are right down there at the edge of the bay. So our entire economic system and our infrastructure that really by which the entire region depends is down there in that in that narrow zone. And speaking of our economic system, the rising seawaters pose a very significant threat to the economy. I, I mean, a very high cost 
to the coastal areas. Is that, that correct? That is true. The yeah. USGS, United States Geological Survey, did a study of the economic assets at risk along the entire California coast, meaning the outer coast and San Francisco Bay. This was a few years ago. They estimated that those assets at risk from sea level rise and storm surges was about $150 billion of assets at risk. Two thirds of those, 100 billion, are within San Francisco Bay, which just shows just how much of assets that we have that are uniquely at the edge of the sea or at the edge of the bay in this very low-lying area. And getting back to the triple threat, just enunciate what those are again, Those the triple threat facing the Bay Area. Okay. So I'm, I'm interested in what kind of a timeline we're facing in terms of being able to do something about the pace of this climate change. Well, we're looking at a, a basically we have to look at this probably um, at least over the next 80 years, mm -hmm. between now and the, the the turn of the next century, between now and 2100, um, we, there's a tremendous amount we need to do in the next 15 years, because in about 15 years, um, all the best estimates are that sea level rise is only going to accelerate. Mm -hmm. And so for much of the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the things that has protected much of our shoreline from various impacts is, is the wetlands. The wetlands, the natural wetlands around the edge of the bay provide a, a buffer, but we're looking at, you know, up to two to three feet of, of sea level rise between now and 2050 and up anywhere from, you know, six to 10 feet, depending on which estimate you want to use by the end of the century in um, in 80 years. And, and let's remember almost every time we see a new report that comes out, the estimates are saying it's faster and, and it's going to be worse. So exactly. we have a, I would say a 15 year window to do really dramatic work if we're going to protect the infrastructure and put systems in place so that our grandchildren, we can face our grandchildren with a bit of pride rather than embarrassment that we're handing them a, a better world. But, exactly. But it is yeah. that in, that shoreline infrastructure mm -hmm. that we need multiple solutions to protect from both the rising seas that threaten to you know drown out the runways at, at Oakland and San Francisco airport yeah. that would overrun the the water treatment plants that that serve the the entire population that that flood our freeway system the the eastern entry to the uh golden uh, the the bay bridge from from Oakland the the the, the western entry uh from from Palo Alto to the Dumbarton bridge yeah. extremely low and subject to flooding and just think what damage we had from the earthquake when the Bay Bridge was out for a while. Oh, yeah. So the economic catastrophe would be enormous. And as you pointed out earlier, these kinds of things pose an even greater threat to low-income communities than to the overall. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a threat to all of us, yeah, but, but particularly heavy burden. In low no, income. The, yeah, this is this is really an equity issue because uh, we have you know years of uh, red zoning that um, you know prevented uh, investment in low-income communities, and you stop and think about it, many of our shoreline areas were where our dump sites were yeah. and where our industrial sites were. And that's where a lot of low-income communities now ex existed then. Mm -hmm. And because we didn't make investments and didn't improve them, still exist. So yeah. it is the low-income, underserved, uh, disadvantaged communities that are going to in around the world, but also here in the Bay Area, yeah. that are going to suffer the worst. They're the ones that have, you know, much fewer trees for urban forestry, so they're they're hotter. They're a, a lower elevation, and so they're more subject to to flooding and 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 sea level rise. But even more important, the soils that are in those communities that from old industrial activities mm -hmm. are the most heavily contaminated soils 
in the entire Bay Area. So is that what people don't realize is that around much of the edge of the San Francisco Bay, we have a very shallow groundwater. Right. And as the seas rise, that pressure underneath pushes that groundwater up. So an added challenge and threat to the health of um, disadvantaged communities in the Bay Area, whether it's it's East Palo Alto, Richmond, West Oakland, Alviso, whatever, is the fact of rising seas pushing up the groundwater and pushing up these high, the the contaminants and exposing the contaminants in the soil. Um, you know, if there's a playground or a, a schoolyard, it's pushing those contaminants up right. and exposing the community to those contaminants. Now, before we start to sound like prophets of doom, let's talk about some of the things that are being done <laughs> yeah. to, to improve the situation and to, and to lessen the threat. What about the, the toxic soils? What, what kind of work is going on now? What kinds of initiatives or projects might improve that situation? Well, believe it or not, we're, I would say that this is an issue that's only come to the, the public's attention uh, courtesy of a very brilliant um, University of California architecture professor named Christina Hill, Dr. Christina Hill, who had her students go out and sample wells a few years ago and brought it to everyone's attention. What a significant issue this is. So really, we're at the very first stage of just trying to do the very basic fundamental science of mapping exactly where the groundwater table is and the rate at which it's rising up. And by August of this year, we'll have a, a, a much better map. I expect mm -hmm. we'll be making investments and investing in studies to say what, now that we know, you know where the groundwater is rising right. and at what rate, then we need to do additional set of studies that really identifies the amount of toxicity in those soils and then come up with you know likely solutions of, of where's the most concentrated area where you might need to dig up the soil or or whatever other alternatives. Right. We're not even at the solution stage yet. We're right. at the fundamental science to better define the problem so that we can come up with the most cost-effective solution. Right. But there is work being done to identify where, yes, the, where exactly. the problem is and exactly. it's most serious. And what about the protection of our wetlands? And, and how important are they? I don't know if many people even think about how important the health of our wetlands uh, yeah. might be. Uh, extraordinarily important. And, um, you know, we kind of the environmental movement started by uh, a group of three women associated with the University of California, Berkeley, that started the Save the Bay movement that said, we are destroying and we're trying to fill our, our bay. And we've lost about three quarters of the wetlands that were there historically. And around the, so the Save the Bay movement that began in the, you know, in the sixties um, helped kind of galvanize uh, the stopping of the filling of the bay. Um, we passed a series of environmental laws and created the Bay Conservation Development Commission in the 70s to regulate development along the edge of the shoreline. Um, in the late 90s, we, the Bay Area did a study that was a Bayland goals at, and a group of scientists and um, government officials identified a goal of protecting about 100,000 acres of shoreline around the Bay. Um, in 2016, we passed a measure, a tax measure uh, that was one of the maybe one of the first tax measures specifically for climate adaptation across nine counties of the Bay Area uh, to raise a half a billion dollars specifically to invest in protecting and restoring the wetlands around the edge of the Bay, because those wetlands not only filter the pollutants that wash down off of our, our driveways and freeways, into the Bay. They also provide a phenomenal wildlife habitat for wildlife in the Bay Area. Right. And they also buffer the shoreline of the Bay from both storm surges 
um, that that did cause you know more severe damage around the, the edge of the bay, and they create ultimately a, an inner park ring, a, a, an inner ring that could be a, a vast natural resource, recreational park as well as wildlife habitat. So, so those wetlands, as I understand it, then serve as sort of a natural filtration system for us. But they also, if they become too contaminated, uh, endanger the life of the, of the wildlife that yes. reside there. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the, the main thing that we're trying to do is, is uh, come up with a strategy that says, um, how are we going to augment you know, right now, sea level rise threatens to basically drown the, those wetlands because wetlands usually kind of, there's a lot of vegetation in the wetlands that, that captures the, the soil particles. And, and um, usually there's a natural accretion where the wetlands rise at the same rate that the seas rise. Right now, the seas are rising faster. Yeah. So we're going to have to figure out where we're going to supplement and add sediment to the wetlands so they keep pace and continue to rise and the vegetation grows and continues to rise as, as the seas rise. Yeah. We did one, the San Francisco Estuary Institute did a study. We this year, and we identified that it's going to take 450 million cubic yards of sediment between now and the end of the century to keep to supplement um, the the natural sediment going in, into wetlands. And that's the equivalent. If you stop and think about the Salesforce Tower, that very large tower in downtown San Francisco, the biggest tower is one million cubic yards. If you were to fill it with mud, I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting we do, no, that. We do that, right? <laughs> but but so we're going to need between now and the next over the next you know 80 years, about 450 Salesforce Tower equivalents of sediment to be added into the wetlands so that we help them maintain themselves and the, so they don't drown and they continue to provide both that natural habitat and that protection along the shoreline. Where does that come from? How do we that, do that? That's our next study. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, probably about 30% of that is going to come naturally down from the creeks and and, and from the, the delta. A large amount of it is frankly going to come from construction sites. Believe it or not, we still dig a lot of holes in the ground in the Bay Area yeah. when we're building new buildings. So sure. a tremendous amount of that can come from actual construction. Some of it might come from give, digging out uh, sediment from, from reservoirs, but probably the large at this, we're, we're still at the sort of the, the economic, we, we've done the physics that says we need the dirt. Yeah, we right. need the sediment. Right. right. We yeah. now have to do the next study that's going to say, all right, what are the policies and the economics to come up with that that dirt in the most cost effective manner? But it, at this point, the best speculation is that it's going to be a very massive effort to say every construction site, when you dig up something, rather than taking it to the landfill, you take it to a centralized spot. And then we figure out the economics of how to get it out into the wetlands to maintain the wetlands. It will still be a lot more cost effective than building dikes or hard infrastructure in a great many areas. Yeah, yeah. Now, the challenge of saving the bay, if you can put it that way, yeah. I guess is it involves um, a, a cooperative effort. I mean, it's great that we've got scientific research going yeah. on and, and planners are, are involved, but, uh, you know, it, it, are local governments doing their share? Is the funding there that's needed to support the research, to uh, provide uh, the, the safeguards we need to keep the environment healthy here? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, like, whether it's the outer coast of California or the the shoreline of the Bay Area, the, the kind of the coastal zone, the Bay shoreline zone mm -hmm. is sort of like the Beirut Benghazi Baghdad of land use <laughs> politics. There's more there's more laws, there's more lawyers, there's more agencies, there's yeah. more government folks, there's more do-gooders, there's more environmentalists <laughs> and scientists involved in that narrow zone. Yeah. And for a great many years, uh, that has caused development in that zone to, to go slow 
And as a public policy issue, the challenge for us, and especially the environmentalists, the, the passionate environmentalists, is we need to pull almost a, a 180 degree Aikido move. And you know, for 50 years, the mantra was, thou should not put another grain of sand in the bay. For the next 10, 15 years and 80 years, it's gonna be, holy moly, where are we gonna come up with the 450 <laughs> Salesforce towers of sediment to put in the bay? Yeah. But we do have a, uh, you know, the, the good news is that, you know, we have the Bay Conservation Development Commission. We have a regulatory agency that has been studying this and has developed a plan called a Bay Adapt that set a set of goals for in con concert with the nine uh, Bay counties. Um, we have a lot of across the Bay Area, there's probably 500 local government staff people, whether they're an aide to a, whether they're in a planning department or public works department or environment health department, an aide to a city councilman or a, a supervisor who are committed and are working and have created their own voluntary networks to say, how do we work collaboratively? And an interesting concept is every one of these meetings I go to, it's 75% female. It's the old oh, white guys yeah. that are out there, you know, giving the speeches <laughs> and stuff. But the people that are doing the work are mostly young, multicultural women yeah. that are that are kicking tail and doing brilliant work and 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 are highly collaborative. And um, I think the challenge for the Bay Area as we move forward is the reality is that, you know, about 90% of climate adaptation is land use planning and about 90% of land use planning is, is done, like it or not, at the city and county level. Those are the agencies that have land use regulatory authority. So the challenge for the Bay Area, especially the you know 46 cities that are on the edge of the Bay and the nine counties that have a lot of Bay frontage, is how do we avoid a, a food fight over the funding that's going to be available? The yeah. good news is yeah. You know, last year, the governor, we had a budget surplus and he put about three and a half billion for climate adaptation statewide. Uh, this year, we've got almost a hundred billion dollars. surplus, surplus yeah. and, and, and there's a, another very large chunk of money that's going to go towards environmental issues. Mm -hmm. We have at the federal level, we passed the one point two trillion infrastructure bill. Mm -hmm. um, California is 10 percent of the U.S. population. So that means in theory. Um, maybe 120 billion should come mm -hmm. to California. Yeah. That's if they don't do the ABC rule in Congress, which is usually anywhere but California. Right. But there's still a large right. chunk of so infrastructure money um, for dealing with shoreline infrastructure and state climate resilience money. Those two things are uh, we're seeing sort of like a a fire hose of funding that's available. So in a way, the Bay Area probably has you know, 10,000 scientists and 10,000 engineers, we have the knowledge and the scientific and the technical capability to come up with the solutions. I would suggest that that even though I represent a and serve 75 scientists at the San Francisco Estuary Institute, I think the real transformative challenge for the Bay Area is likely to be governance and finance. How do we get the 101 cities, the nine counties, the regional agencies, the state agencies to really work in a cogent, collaborative, cooperative manner to come up with the, the most cost-effective solutions that deal with the region-wide issues, but doing it at a local level because that's where the land use authority decisions fundamentally yeah. occur. And secondly, where are we going to figure out how over the next 15, 20 years, we're going to come up with $100 billion that it's going to likely take I'm not saying we need to come up with that much in 20 years, but over the next 80 years, we're going to come up with about that amount of money right. to really rebuild our entire infrastructure to deal with the changing climate that we've 
created this problem um, that we now have to deal with because we're we're not going to be able all to 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 move to Larry Larry Ellison's house up at the <laughs> up at the foothills. No, I don't think he can accomplish. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's no, going to welcome us. No, I, I think when the average person hears about say the approximately fifteen year window we have to really deal effectively effectively with this with the rising rising ocean waters before we're literally swamped and no pun intended yeah, yeah. By, by those rising waters uh it's disturbing it's upsetting and we wonder what kind of world our children and our grandchildren yeah. are, are going to be living in uh i don't know of a more passionate and committed uh person to the health of our environment than you what gives you hope and optimism that we are going to be able to meet these challenges I think the thing that gives me the most hope, quite frankly, is when I go to these meetings and I say that there's 75% female and they're usually young women that are in their early thirties and they've, they've held off having a child or getting married maybe till, till they're 28, 29, 30. They've got a Bambino on one hip. They're hitting the <laughs> professional pride and they're doing amazing work and they're very collaborative. And, you know, we've seen you know, teams of women do just brilliant thing. There was a a, a woman named Julie Beagle at, at San Francisco Estuary Institute, and she teamed up with Laura Tam, a, a brilliant woman with SPUR, which is an urban planning organization. And together they produced the San Francisco Bay Adaptation Atlas. And they combined like 25 years of all the best maps that SFEI had, had produced so that a local planner could access the information. They divided the bay up into like 30 segments. They called them operational landscape units after a Dutch concept. And they analyzed like 20 different solutions that were about half of them were green infrastructure and half of them are gray sort of concrete infrastructure solutions for that segment of shoreline. And they produced a kind of an opportunities map for each of 30 segments. So they produced this brilliant suite of options and solutions, but in, on top of, and maybe even better than the the actual design, was just the process that they were so good at being collaborative and pulling people in at the at the the nonprofit, the academic, the government level. Yeah. So by the time they produced this San Francisco Bay Adaptation Atlas, a lot of people said they own it. It wasn't just the spur SFEI document. It was people from San Mateo, from San Jose, from Oakland, from Marin County said, this is our guidebook. So I, yeah. I just feel that there is this, this generation that's coming out of the universities that they they all have hyphenated degrees. They've got a, <laughs> like a, a degree in a hard hyphenated science, you know, hydrogeology and, uh, you know, and um, design graphics. So they're able to take really intense, complex scientific problems and the ability to graphically present them in a manner that gives people hope. And right. I think in, in the world of politics and policy, it, it overly simplistically, it boils down to some people push fear, some people push hope. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen that in the past two uh, recent cycles, recent cycles yeah, for yeah. a while. And I, I think the people that are pushing hope, if you can give people a positive visual image of this is what your community could be. Here's right. the facts that you're able to do that. And yep. with the technology we have, let's stop and think that that um, San Francisco Bay Area is like we're the galactic, uh, you know, mothership of every communication and tech company around the planet that that has transformed how three quarters, if not more, of the planet how we access knowledge. Um, communicate whether it's it's Apple, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, and stuff. So those people that have the ability to gather data 
and present it in a manner that's digestible and usable right. are here. So right. if if with the the 10,000 scientists and 10,000 engineers, the progressive local leaders, we have county supervisors like John Joya from Contra Costa, Dave Pine from San Mateo, Stephanie Moulton-Peters from Marin County. We have committed local government officials who are thinking strategically across the Bay Area. When we passed Measure AA, we created the Bay Restoration Authority. We created a new form of governance to figure out how are we going to give out the solutions? Uh, how are we going to give out the $25 million a year that we've raised in taxes to, to address uh, Bay protection? So I feel like you know the Bay Area has really the, the potential to be the national model of how, how an urban region of 8 million people at the edge of the sea tackle climate adaptation with solutions, with hope, vision, integrity, solid science, and, and a commitment to the future. You just got right into what I wanted to ask you about next, and that is being a national model, because we've been talking a lot about uh, challenges from climate change that are specific to the Bay Area, but what we're learning here can be useful to other parts of the country, because these ocean waters are rising everywhere, are they not? That, that is correct. I don't. I should know this statistic, but a vast proportion of the global population lives at, at the edge of the sea. And one thing, if you look back over you know, 20, 25 years of leadership or even more on climate change, it's it's municipalities. It's, it's the mayors and the councilmen and women of, of large, usually metropolitan cities, many, a great many of them at the edge of the sea that have come up with bold, visionary ideas that have then filtered up to the nations and have been shared nationally. Yeah. You stop and think about it, you know, even here in California, you know, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and men's fashion was at its lowest point in human history in the early 70s in California, we passed the Coastal Initiative and the Coastal Act, and we created a system of governance for managing the shoreline of California. Yeah. Well, over the last 50 years, um, that model, that governance model has been researched and, and people from countries around the world have come to California to look at that model. Yeah. I, now we're looking at a large metropolitan area um, of, of, the, of the Bay Area. So I think we have the potential of thinking creatively about governance, about finance and applying the best science so that we can provide a model for many comparable areas, the, the shoreline of Virginia, the um, my home Mar state, Maryland, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the almost most of the eastern seaboard, yeah. you know, shares a great many of the same issues that the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. So now, as uh, th this is very hopeful, by the way, <laughs> you're making me feel a lot better the longer we talk. But what signs should we be looking for that might suggest we're not moving quite fast enough to keep up? with the changes that they that are going on in the atmosphere and, and with the ocean. I mean, you, you talked about the 15 year window on how much sea level rise we might see in that period of time. Uh, what are some of the warning signs we might be on the lookout for that will tell us we need to work a little faster at this? Uh, well, uh, think about uh, about a year ago when the skies of the entire Bay Area turned bright orange because of the wildfires yeah. that were happening up, yeah. up, up north. Uh, think about times where um, there's been flooding and you were in Nevada and you wanted to make a right turn and go across Highway 37 to Vallejo and you couldn't because it was flooded. Uh, think about every time we have atmospheric rivers increasingly, a lot more roadways are, are flooded. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're seeing the evidence, um, maybe not as dramatic as we should to, to alarm us to, to get moving, but also almost, almost on a daily basis, there is another study that says we need to be moving, moving faster. So right, I, I think, right. um, you know, it, 
no one ever wants to say you wish something bad would happen. But if we were to have a, a really heavy uh, atmospheric storm that, that dropped an enormous amount of water on the Bay Area, we'd have a tremendous amount of flooding in our in our region. Right. So, um, you know, we have a, a slight disadvantage because we haven't had some really powerful shock value things other than, like I said, the wildfires when when we were literally choking and the skies turned turned yeah. orange. And of course, we're all concerned about this coming wildfire season because the, the outlook, I, well, let me back up a little bit. Things are changing so fast in the atmosphere now that I don't know how reliable these outlooks are. Yeah. But based on the science that we have, the outlook is that this could be a very dangerous wildfire season because it's so dry. Uh, and because we're moving into those seasons where we don't expect to get rainfall. Yeah. So uh, how does that factor into your concerns? Well, yeah. tremendously. I mean, the one thing that we're seeing, there's a steady rise of the earth is getting warmer and warmer and warmer. Yeah. And I, I can't remember how long ago it was. Was it 15 years, 20 years ago? We had the Oakland wildfire. There was a horrible wildfire in the hills above Berkeley and, and Oakland. Oh, yeah. And if, it, if the winds hadn't shifted, Mm-hmm. That fire would have just moved down the mountains and and taken out a, a very large part of, of of Berkeley and 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 some of some of Oakland. So, you know, we we've been saved from horrific catastrophic issues directly impacting the Bay Area. We've seen horrific situations at the edge of the Bay Area. Contra yeah. Costa County has a, a huge wooded area from you know between. Uh, you know, Berkeley and 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 going over the hills toward towards Walnut Creek. You know, a heavy and eucalyptus trees. Oh. You, want, you want to talk about standing dynamite sticks? Yeah. Um, you know, you have a heavy wildfire that moves west with the Diablo winds, um, and you could have a, a huge catastrophe. I don't want to be a doomsday artist. Right. You, you had you had a wildfire in in you know that that took out a big chunk of a big basin. So yeah. we have you know we have the the crises. Yeah. Are, are, we've been there's been some some severe damage but not yet anything that's like horrifically catastrophic um and you know that should be enough of a wake-up call and the, i think the good news is there is a a powerful alignment between the local government officials the regional officials the state officials um there will be a lot of effort in this coming um basically the next month uh when the governor and the the state legislature work out just how much more money they're going to put into drought and wildfire solutions. So we need to be looking not only at, you know, things that we're going to do that are going to have an immediate effect, but kind of laying the foundation for long-term sustainable change. It's encouraging to know that that alignment is there, that that partnership, if you will. So uh, is there a website people can go to who may want to keep up with new developments, what's happening in terms of, uh, you know, preserving the the bay waters and the the wetlands, uh, all all the work that you've just talked about? Is is there a website people could visit just to keep up with what's going on and see what the challenges are and what some of the potential solutions are. Yeah. Um, I, I should have been better prepared for that question, believe it. Okay. Well, the, this, the, 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 the self-serving answer is the San Francisco Estuary Institute. That's good enough. <laughs> www.sfei.org, San right. Francisco Estuary Institute. Got it. SF, www.sfei.org. And we've produced about a hundred studies that are, have looked at a, a variety of issues. So there's a lot of good information there. I would also say uh, the Bay Conservation Development Commission, uh, oh, BCDC, because yeah. they've produced a, a recent report called Bay Adapt. So if you just mm-hmm. Google Bay Adapt, there's a, a document there. There's also the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Associations 
of Bay Area governments have produced a plan that's called Bay Area 2050. So if you just Google Bay Area 2050, you're going to see a regional plan that was produced for the entire nine county regions. If you Google Bay Adapt, you're going to see the regional strategy for just the shoreline of the bay. So I'd say those three things. I'd say uh, plan Bay Area 2050, Bay Adapt, and the San Francisco Estuary Institute, SFEI.org. Excellent. Uh, Warner Chabot, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I hope you'll come back again because we're going to have a lot more to talk about yeah. in, uh, as th- these topics are concerned in, in the near future. Yeah. So thanks and, and stay available. Remain available to us, please. Okay. okay. Thank you to our guest for joining us today, and thank you for listening. After the Weather is a product of ABC7. Be sure to subscribe, and if you liked our program, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.